Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, component costs of capital. Well, we'll start with a look at the numbers as usual. Then I'm going to walk you through the uh, mathy part of the weighted average cost of capital. Now, one thing to mention here is that Excel is almost like an overkill for this. Uh, although you can use Excel, and there's one place where it actually has a really nice little trick for this kind of work, but I, I will show it mostly in the calculator, and then I'll do sort of like an afterthought on the fly. Here's what Excel would look like to do this kind of thing. But that's uh, down the road just a little bit here. First, a look at the numbers, and we've got another sour day on the street, just a grouchy day. Now, as you can see, the Dow is up a little bit, but the S&P 500 is, uh, the Dow is up 0.13%. Nothing huge there, that's just barely up. And then the S&P is down, uh, that index is down almost a half a percent. And then the NASDAQ is just getting a slapping right now. It's just getting beaten back and forth. And uh, so it's not a horrible day, but it's just not a good day at all. Crude is, uh, playing around $80 a barrel on the benchmark Brent Light Suite. And uh, that's, I, I mean, it doesn't seem to want to go too far in any given direction right now. The, uh, but I can guarantee you the price of gasoline is going to go up. It, the oil prices just dropped like a rock and oil prices went down a little bit. And now, of course, as oil goes up, you'll see $4 a gallon gas again. But that's what you get when you live in a world with oligopolies controlling an industry. Uh, for, for, what that, uh, for better or worse. Now, interestingly, gold had a... Um, has had sort of a run here. The gold bugs have pushed it above $2,000 an ounce. And uh, as you can see there in that spark chart, it spiked at the midday and then just immediately dropped back off. But it's still above, kind of like an old long-term neckline at 2000 per ounce. And whether it's going to hold there or not, it's hard to say. But it's obviously because there is trouble in the economy. The economy does show signs of recessionary pressures, but it's not in a recession by any means. Silver slid back off again. Ten-year bond, yield is down, price is up. Price is up, uh, investors are moving funds into bonds. Where are they getting those funds? They're obviously pulling out of equities. This is not some dramatic flight to quality. It's just a little quiet moving some of your, uh, allocate, reallocating your assets away, a little bit away from equity and a little bit more toward debt. No one's in the mood to have a wholesale run to debt and away from equities yet. We just don't see anything that catastrophic on the horizon right now. But if you're looking at here, 
the Euro USD. Right now, you can buy a Euro for about just under a dollar nine. And the, it's been playing at that 109 level, and there are those who say, well, a dollar ten, dollar twelve, whatever, for a Euro. The dollar is weakening. But it didn't seem to, it isn't weakening that much. If you look at this, <coughs> it was up in here. And then it just dropped off the face of the earth. It was up here above, well above a dollar nine, almost probing up to a dollar ten. And that, that's the dollar weakening. And the weakening would be the result mostly of interest rates in the United States are not going to go up as strongly as interest rates in Europe will. So the value of the dollar will fall against the value of the euro. That was what was making the euro appreciate and the dollar depreciate. But then, look at this drop off here. Something spooked the markets and now the dollar is strengthening again against the euro, dropping below a dollar nine to the euro. And it's really confusing. If that confuses you, trust me, it is what's appreciation, what's depreciation. You should see sometimes in my international finance class, I get them backwards and then I'm trying to scramble out of my mistake like I knew what I was talking about. But um, I'll keep doing this and you'll get used to the terminology as I do more of it. Now notice, interestingly enough, that the same is true. The dollar, the pound sterling, the British pound is weakening against the dollar. The dollar is getting stronger there too. So the exchange rates are moving in favor of the dollar again. Not spectacularly, but there it is. Now Japanese, uh, the yen, is quoted backwards. So when you see it drop, that's the yen, that's the dollar depreciating against the yen. And as you can see, strangely enough, it is going towards strengthening of the yen. The reason it's backward with the dollar versus the yen is because the yen is worth so little. One unit, one yen is worth a tiny part of a dollar. So they turn it around. So it's a single, uh, so it's a, a um, yen, uh, it turns it backwards so that you get bigger numbers, the inverse of the numbers. Don't worry about that right now. London, it's had uh, just a bouncy day, uh, not a spectacular day, and it's not ended yet, but as you can see, it's not a spectacular day over in London. Last night, Nikkei was just in a dropping mood, more than a 1.5% one, one down. Uh, sour sentiment over a, in Asia, but especially uh, in Japan right now, concerns about the Japanese economy. So the big Japanese stocks, the Nikkei 225, 225 big stocks, uh, took a hit just because they're seeing economic problems to a horizon with a recession possibly on it. So we're all in a kind of a wait and see mood, a little bit grouchy. One thing interesting here, let me come over here to the S&P 500. Notice how light the volume is. Compare the average day over the last year, the S&P 500, those 500 stocks, 4.4 billion of them 
traded on an average day over the last year. Today, it's, it, we're nearing the end of the day. We've still got some time, but it's well less than half of that. There's a lot of hold back. In other words, the, a lot of the heavies are staying off the platform right now, just waiting to see where we go from where we are. There was some news today, uh, maybe it was yesterday, the jobs report was much weaker than we thought it would be, our estimates. Now, that sounds bad news. Yes, but it's also good news because if the jobs report is an indication of future economic activity, that means that we are probably heading towards a recession. That would, that's bad news, but that would spook the Fed which can't, has been raising interest rates like there's no tomorrow. And suddenly, if the Fed sees a real weakening of the economy, the Fed's going to say, we can't raise interest rates anymore or we're going to cause the economy to buckle. So, bad news, fewer jobs being uh, created. Good news, that's going to make the Fed stop raising interest rates. So... <laughs> Your call is as good as mine on what all that means when you put it together. But anyway, enough of that. Let me uh, get this off here for a little bit and take you back to the... Oh, I wanted, did want to show you one real quick thing here. Uh, just to look at Treasury yields right now. Uh, let me get to Google because I can't seem to keep a bookmark. Uh, here in Firefox. Uh, there it is. Look real quick at where the yield curve sits right now. Okay, we're in the early part. Let me, uh, 2023, let's look at the whole year so far. And then I'll get down here to the bottom part. Now, as you can see, you see how the yields are beginning to drop on these? And we still have a nasty inverted yield curve. It's flattening in there, but it's still pretty nasty. But notice how most of these yields are beginning to ease back now. In other words, the investing sentiment is that the Fed is going to lay off the interest rate increases. It's, had, it's done its jo job. You see how these yields are beginning to drop down, especially the longer hauls are beginning to pull down. Well, right in there, they're really pulling down the intermediates. But that, that kind of is a signal that the market's expectations are that the interest rates going up, 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 that's at an end, or it's coming to an end. You're seeing these yields, which are driven by market forces, showing their, showing their muscle here and saying, probably we're coming to the end of the higher interest rates. And that takes us, that takes me into the topic of today's lecture. I brought up an Excel screen in case I have the uh, wherewithal to do this as an exercise. One thing to start this off, I'm find a marker that will work. To start this off, is that 
securities markets use prices as the way they convey their information. It, it, and uh, oftentimes, we don't really need a price. We need a, uh, a cost, an R, an interest rate, or a yield, or something of that nature. But the price is the way that the markets are going to signal. And of course, price and yield are inversely related. And we've got the math, you've seen the math for bonds, how you can turn the price of a bond into the yield on the bond. And that is true also of stocks. We don't see returns on stocks. We see prices going up and down. You look at Yahoo and you don't see, well, the yield on this stock or the rate of return on this stock. No, we don't see it that way. We see the price and that then we have to do some math to turn it around into an actual yield. Now, when I use the word cost in the current lectures, I am actually going to be referring to interest, uh, an interest rate or a return or a yield. We have to talk about the cost of capital, and in our world, cost is usually some kind of an interest rate. So when I write the weighted average cost of capital, the wackadoodle, that is the weight of debt times the after-tax cost of debt plus the weight of equity times the after-tax cost of equity. And you notice that those are R's. They aren't dollars, they're R's, rates of return. <coughs> so everything we do in this world of R's has to do with rates of return. Now, on its face, the after-tax cost of debt is pretty simple. The after-tax cost of debt is nothing but the pre-cost, the stated cost of debt times one minus the tax rate because you get, a corporation gets to deduct its interest expense. So that makes debt cheap, cheaper than the stated rate. Now the first pass, well what's the R, what's the R sub D? First try. Well, the R sub D would be the coupon on the last debt they uh, the company issued. So, in other words, if they're issuing, uh, they've gone through senior senior subordinated, and they're juniors. Let's say that that was an eight percent. The coupon rate is 8%. Just look at the, just look at the ticker symbol or whatever, and you'd say, okay, so we would first estimate the R sub D by 8%. And if we are staying in this tax environment where the tax rate is 21%, then the after-tax cost of debt oops, would be 8% times 1 minus 0.21. And that's easy to do.
turn this calculator on. So 8% times quantity 1 minus 0.21, which is 0.79. So 6.32%. So that would be the, our first pass at that number in the weighted average cost of cap. Okay. Not hard at all. Unfortunately, that's not quite good enough. You see, because the market is going to look at the coupon and say, that's bad, that's good, that's right where we want it to be. But whatever it is, we actually are going to need the yield to maturity because that is what the market currently says the cost of debt capital to the company should be. Let's say that the yield to maturity, YTM, you do the calculator routine or something like that, and the yield to maturity on the last, the riskiest debt that the company has is let's say 8.45%. That would be the number we would use, not the, six, not the 8%. The reason is simple. The market says right now, if that company went out and asked for more debt, it would have to uh, pay 8.45% for it. So in other words, we probably do not want the 8%, the coupon on the last debt. We would want the 8.45%. times 1 minus 0.21. And if we do that, 8.45% times 1 minus 0.21 would give us 6.6755. That would be the number that we would want to use in the weighted average cost of capital. <coughs> so you would just go, well, just, you'd go through a company's bonds. You'd find the, la the, the most, the, the riskiest, the ones that were the, at the end of the chain, because you know that the next one's going to then be the end of the chain. So, the next round of debt this company raises, the uh, markets are going to say, at a minimum, we want a coupon of 8.45%. So if this company raises any more debt, it will raise it at, it will pay on the coupon what the market thinks that the riskiest debt the company has outstanding right now is. So that was, and I, always, I, I like to go back to the Netflix example. If you looked at Netflix's coupons on the bonds they had outstanding before they raised that whopping amount of money, those coupons were pussycat. They were just normal 
for the time and the size of the company. But if you looked at the yield on those, it was very, on those bonds that were already outstanding, it was very high. And so when Netflix went out there to borrow that $1.2 billion or whatever it was, oh, that was what the coupon, it was very, it was around the yield to maturity on the last debt Netflix uh, issued before. And this is the way it usually works. Go ahead. So is the R like sub D and like AT, is that the same thing as the A sub D and T? Oh, I put an A there. I was, God. Uh, just, when you get to my age, just end yourself for God's sake. You know, don't embarrass your family. You saw me caught, catch myself a couple of times doing that, and that one I didn't. But of course, you wait until I've gone on about 20 minutes before you bring it up. Thank you very much. Anyway. Oh. Oh. Needs more Jack in here today. Okay. Okay, so this one's kind of a straightforward thing. Just find yield to maturity on the on their riskiest debt, on their most recent debt. Because you know that when they go back out there to get more capital, debt capital, the markets are going to say, we want it at least at what we told you by our, mark, by our prices on the bonds, what uh, it should be. And that's why it always kind of is concerning. Because we look at the price of bonds sinking recently uh, because of the Fed's actions. Well, that means the yield to maturity is going up, which means that the cost of debt is going up for these companies. Raising debt is, getting, is more expensive. And that's why the markets are a little bit happy right now, because yields are beginning to fall on treasuries, which means that overall yields should start to slide off on corporate stuff, on corporate paper. And so everyone, that means that we should see companies going back out there and borrowing money to boost their operations. We hope. We'll see, though. I have a Yeah. Um, so I understand that like the yield to maturity is like the cost like the cost of debt capital. So what is the coupon rate then? The coupon is what it, the cost was when they, when they borrowed the money. Think about it this way. You bought a house and you got an interest rate on that house of 4%, right? Mm -hmm. That's your coupon rate. Okay, now you go back out there. Wow, I can go and borrow, buy another house at 4%. But interest rates on home loans have gone to seven percent. Are you going to get four uh, percent? No. No. You, you said that almost plaintively. No. <laughs> but and you're going to say, well, wait, wait a minute, Mr. Lender. I've got four percent right there, and he's going to say, now you listen here. We're charging seven percent now. So you understand that that coupon, the four percent, is no longer relevant to what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next is what the market says. And the market says 7%, you'll pay 7%. The market at the time that coupon was, in, that bond was issued, whatever it was, it was say 8%. But now 
if the markets are signaling that 8.45% is what they expect for the next round, <coughs> that's going to be it. In a sense, it's almost, it's kind of a weird thing. The 8% is a historical figure, and it really doesn't mean a lot anymore. Uh, there was an article on one of the um, financial services talking about all these homeowners. They say they're in homeowner's hell because they have these houses with mortgages at 3%. And they said, we have been in this house for like 10 years. We want to move. Our family has grown. They can't because they are trapped in a th uh, trap because if they go back out there and buy a house, it's going to run them 7 8% now for a mortgage. That 3% no longer means anything. It uh, doesn't mean anything to them uh, because their next decision is going to be based upon can we afford 7%, 8%, not 3%. That's why we have to almost like dismiss the coupon because it's the market that's going to tell us what the next round of capital is going to cost us. And hence why the weighted average cost of capital does that. Now, let me go on here. I gotta see if I've got some money to do this. I do. Before I go on to the cost of equity, now the cost of equity is a pain in the ass, comparatively speaking. It's just more formulas. But I do want to bring up something. <laughs> I have... Wait a minute. I have learned not to give money to girls. <laughs> I'll pay you back. I will. No, you won't. Lie. Okay, I'm going to give you $60, and I'm going to give you $20. Now, I'll do a demonst another demonstration of this on Monday, but I'm going to show you something. Suppose that the optimal capital structure of a certain company, debt is 25% and equity is 75%. Now, you, madam, are the treasurer of our company. And you have the retained earnings. You've got this pile of money. Not just that, but you have plenty. And I come to you, and I say, okay, I've got a capital project that's going to cost $80. 
And I walk up to you and I say, Madam, reach into your funds and whip me out $80 out of retained earnings. And you're going to say, no, well, your first thing you're going to say is, go away, fat boy. You see, because the $80, the equity part of that would be $80 would equal, well, The eighty dollars. I need eighty dollars here. If I took seventy-five percent times eighty dollars, and the debt part twenty-five percent times eighty dollars. I would maintain my capital structure. But if I asked you for the whole amount, that would mean that I had put too much equity into the project and not enough debt. So I can use uh, I, in order to maintain my capital structure, have to ask you for $60. Don't start with me, woman. Oh, sorry. Flashback. <laughs> Hairdresser named Tiffany. Uh, and then I go to this debt lender here and I say, I should like $20 from you. What do you want? You want me to offer my ass too? No, $20. Okay. Really? <laughs> you understand that in order to maintain the capital structure, a company, every capital project has to be financed in the balance of the debt equity of the optimal capital structure. Otherwise, the project has thrown the overall capital structure of the company off. And, you know, I have enough for a grand slam and pie tonight. Oh. Of course. I mean, I'd go to Waffle House just so I could see gunfire, but there aren't any around here. And if you don't know what a Waffle House is, or a White Castle, you haven't lived. So understand that anything that I'm doing here has to be in the balance of debt and equity both contributing to the capital projects of a company. Now let's get down to the cost of equity. The cost of equity uh, and all of these. And this is where I get into something. Someone asked me, there were some formulas, remember the horizon value formulas and all of that? And they said, you're always finding the price, right? Well, back then, yeah. But we're going to turn the formulas around now. And we're going to find the required rate of return using the market's price signal. Now, actually, 
the weight of equity is going to have three pieces to it. The first one is the weight of preferred equity times the cost of preferred. The second one is the weight of your stockholders, common stockholders, times the cost of existing common stock. And then there's this nasty little bastard on the end, the weight of new equity times the cost of new equity. One by one. Preferred is easy. Remember the formula I showed you, the uh, a level non-growing perpetuity, the price of preferred is going to be the flat dividend divided by the cost, the required rate of return to the preferred. That formula from uh, last week. Well, what we can certainly do, we can just cross multiply the cost of preferred is the dividend divided by the current price of the preferred stock. <coughs> Z F G one point two percent cumulative preferred par value $60 per share is currently Priced at $62.50 per share. Write this down for God's sake. Just know where you put things. That's the formula. So the first thing I'll need is the dividend, the preferred pays. And that's going to be... 1.2% times the par value. And if I do that, I got 0.012 times $60. Oops. That's step one, find the dividend. Step one, find the dividend that will be paid every year forever. Step two, use the formula right there. The required rate of return to the preferred, the cost of preferred capital, is going to be 
0.72 divided by the current market price, $62.50. So step two, take the dividend you calculated, then divide it by the market price. And if you do that, you should get about 1.1, something like that. Divided by 62.50, That's the cost preferred. So this is just a two-step. Make sure you get the formula in your notes, on your note card, and wherever. It's actually, it's the easiest of, the, of them. <coughs> so we, we got the cost of preferred. Now comes the next This is the one. Where there is not a one way to do it. It would depend upon the company that you are dealing with. The easiest of them by far is the uh, old constant growth dividend company. We have a formula that we can easily turn around to get that one. The constant growth dividend companies are the easiest ones. Now there's another way that's actually pretty darn easy too. I'll show you here in a minute. Find another marker here too. Give me a second. Nope, I'm dead. Well, I'll have to just stick with the one I've got. So anyway, okay. Common stock. We'll deal with the main one first. Existing. Now, the first way would work only if you have a constant dividend growth company. It will work only if you have a constant dividend growth company. One of those uh, ones that's old, it's got its dividend stabilized at a constant growth. Now, you remember the formula for that. That when for the price, what I would do is I would take the dividend one period out and divide it by the required rate of return on the dividends minus the growth rate. Remember that formula from last week? Now you don't have to follow me. It's pretty straightforward how you would turn this around, just like I did with preferred. I'm going to solve for the R sub S. And if you solve for the R sub S, it turns out that that R sub S is going to be the dividend one period out, which is D0 times one plus G, divided by the current price of the common stock, 
plus g. This is just a, this is just an algebraic rearrangement of that. Not hard at all. V R A common just paid a dividend of a dollar seventy five per share that is expected to grow at a constant rate of three percent for the foreseeable future. VRA common is currently selling at $31.20 per share. Give you a chance to write that down. VRA Common just paid a dividend of $1.75 per share that is expected to grow at a constant rate of 3% for the foreseeable future constant dividend growth rate model. VRA Common is currently selling at $31.20 per share. So here we go. So, step one, D1 is going to be D0 times 1 plus G, which would be $1.75 times 1 plus 0.03. So we get the dividend. Remember you have to have, if I said the next dividend will be or they will pay a dividend of in one year, then you would have the D1. But here I gave that they just paid the dividend so you have to grow it one period. Remember what I said about that in the last lecture, uh, in last week's lecture. If I say they just paid a dividend of. That means you have to grow it one period. If I tell you they will pay a dividend of in a year, then that means you've already been given the D1. Uh, on. Clear. So I'm going to take um, the dollar seventy-five, one point seven five, times one point times one point oh three, times. 1 plus 0 0.03 close parenthesis equal 110725 that's D1 
And then I'm going to divide that. It, uh, 0.075, 0.75. 0.75, let me see. 10.725. Where? Uh, OK, tell me what I did, for God's sake. <laughs> God damn it. Okay. Well, oh, you're right. I was just testing you on that. I was going to say that dividend didn't grow at all. No, I mean, 1 plus 0.03, you're right. Of course, you always wait until I've gotten through it and gone on. One, yeah, 1.8025, 1.8025. Hence why I give you this range of answers in case you screw up like I did there. Over the current price, which is $31.25 per share. And then you add the 0.03. And make sure you add it as a decimal. So I'll divide this by the market price, 31, what was that, 0.25? And then I will add the 0.03. Right, yeah. 8.768%. What was that? 31 point what? 31.20, okay, that's easy. Second, enter. I don't know if I showed you this or not. If you hit second, enter, it'll allow you to go back and edit what you did. Let me do that one more time because that doesn't look right. 1.8. Might have. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, don't try to fix a mistake after you've made it. Sometimes that's the worst thing you can do. Divided by 31.20. C20, are you happy with that? And plus 0 0.03. 8.77. 8.77. 8.77. 8 so you get about 8.777%. Now one thing here. Notice that this is always going this is going to be very normally the case. The cost of common stock is going to be more than the cost of preferred stock. That's one of the mysteries. Why? If, if preferred stock has a lower cost of capital, then why do companies issue common stock instead of preferred stock? Another thing that's important here too, you see in both of these formulas, well I erased the other one, how the price is a denominator for preferred and common stock. In other words, as, as the price of a stock goes up, its cost of equity capital goes down. Again, 
if you look at both this formula and the one for preferred, price goes of uh, the stock goes up, the cost of equity capital goes down. If the price of a stock goes down, the cost of equity capital goes up. This is one of those things that's kind of difficult for some companies to understand. They don't really worry about the price of their stock. Ah, it'll go up, it'll go down. But if a stock price is going down, it's like a fever in the company. It's increasing their weighted average cost of capital because that impacts the price inversely impacts the overall cost of capital to the company. The problem here is, yeah. So like I know so far we've calculated like R sub P and R sub S. And R sub D A T as well, yes. Yeah. yeah, so what are the W like the W The weights. I'll show you those. Right. How much weight? Like the point that's the point seven five, point two five thing. And I'll show you a real example of it here in just a little bit. The problem here is that not all companies, as a matter of fact, not a lot of companies, have a constant growth dividend. What do you do if you're in a situation like that? You can't use this formula. But there is another way. Method one works for old constant growth dividend companies. But there's a way that would work for any company as long as you could find a beta. The expected return or cost of the capital is R sub F plus the beta of the stock times the expected return to the market portfolio minus the risk-free rate. In other words, the, cap the capital asset pricing model. You could find the cost of equity cap common stock just by using cap M. So I could give you a problem uh, CLJ common has a beta of 1.2 zero. The expected return to the market is currently ten point five percent and the risk-free rate is 3.85%. Now I would obviously give you this information. And you could just apply the CAPM to see what we had. We would have the risk-free rate, 
3.85 percent plus the beta of the stock 1.20 times the expected return to the market 10.5 percent minus the risk-free rate which is 3.85 percent and that could give us an estimate of the cost of common equity. This is actually done fairly frequently. Yeah, I have a question. So yes. why is the capital asset price Because I can find the return, the retru expected return the market has on that common stock, which is the cost of common, common equity. So in this case, I do, and watch me, make sure I don't key in something wrong, 3.85 plus 1.2 the beta times 10.5% uh, return to the market minus the 3.85, 11.83%. This one is, as I said, I mean, in a way, this is kind of easier than that first method. The downside of this method is, what if the stock doesn't have a beta? It's got negative earnings or something like that. Uh, well, that might not stop it, but uh, it isn't old enough to have a beta calculated. It hasn't been around long enough. In a case like that, we use industry comps. We say, okay, what do, with companies that do have betas that are like this company, Let's take the average of those betas and use it there. If the company itself doesn't have a beta, we just take an average of betas of comparable companies that do have betas. And then, like I said in the CAPM lecture, we get an estimate of the expected return to the market portfolio. We go to the treasuries and look for a one-year treasury, get the R sub F, and that's how we do it. Yeah. I understand like the math and the formulas, but what are we looking at? <laughs> Good question. All of this is coming back to how much our common stockholders cost us. What is the cost? Think of it like the cost of retained earnings. We've got this money, but it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to our shareholders. We owe it to them. What do they expect us to earn on it? In one way or another, the market's going to give us the message. The price, that first method, the price tells us what the market expects to return. That's our cost to keeping our shareholders. And if we make them mad, they'll sell the stock, the price will go down, and the, exp and the cost of our equity capital will go up. Does that help a little bit? <laughs> it takes a while to soak in. Trust me, it does. And your question is not stupid. It's annoying, but it's not stupid. <laughs> and, and it goes back to the old thing. You go in some of the higher finance courses. You do so much math. You get a number at the end. Now you say, what the hell does this tell me? Oh, yeah, that's what I was trying to do. Now, there's actually another way that's very popular, and it's the easiest way of all. 
It's the easiest way of all. You take comparable companies, companies that have, are comparable, and you look at two things. You look at, okay, what is their cost of debt cap? Let's say their cost of debt capital for the average company like this company. It this is method three, and I can't even explain it. I'll write something down here in a minute. Let's say that that cost of capital for them, debt capital, is, let's say, 6.5%. The average yield to maturity on the debt of companies like this one. And then we look at their average return expected return their cost of equity capital. Let's say that that is 14.8%. Just overall average in the industry. What that would mean is that the equity premium for normal companies in this industry would be 14.8% the cost of their equity minus 6.5% the cost of their debt. So the equity premium is 8.3% over the cost of debt. for the average company in this industry. So what you do is you take the cost of equity capital is the cost of this company's debt, this company's debt, it's yield to maturity on its last, plus the equity premium. So let's say that this company has an, a cost of its debt, the yield to maturity on its last debt that this company all issued was let's say 6.95%. The way we do it is we would simply say, okay, 6.95% plus the industry's equity premium, 8.3%. Which would come out to be, oh no, I'm not even going to try to do this in my head. I'm not that foolish. So I take 6.95% um, plus 8.3% and it's 15.25%. That would be the cost of equity for this company. Since it seems 
that in this industry, the equity premium over the cost of debt is 8.3%. That would mean for this company, since its cost of debt is 6.95%, its cost of equity would be 6.95% plus about 6.3%. That's method three. And this is actually, if I were to make a, just a, an off-the-cuff statement, this is the most popular way to do it, to find the cost of common stock, the cost of your common shareholders. That was a lot like work. There's one last part, the cost of new. And I make this fairly simple. It has to do with the fact that if we run out of retained earnings, remember how you were fussing at me because you didn't have enough there at that? I don't have $80. Well, you didn't need it. You needed 60 But what happens if the amount of equity that you're supposed to kick into a project is more than you have in retained earnings to do so? you have to issue new common stock. There's a problem with new common stock, though. You have to pay the brokers to sell it. So if you have a stock price, I want to sell a million shares at $50 a share. I'm going to take get $50 million. No, you're not the brokers, the selling syndicate, is going to take a flotation cost. They're going to take their, before you get it, let's say that they take 4%, the, uh, uh, four million, let's say they take uh, 8%. That means that you're not going to get any $50 million. You're going to get $50 million minus 8% of $50 million. So the way we compensate for new stock is actually a very easy, simple way. We take the formula problem number one, the process number one, and what we do is instead of D1 over P0, we take D1 over P minus the float cost plus G. So in other words, that bottom number, if the stock is selling at $50 a share, then for a new common, the cost is not going to be the dividend one period out over 50 plus a growth rate. It's going to be the dividend over $50 million of $50 a share minus 8% plus G. The subtract the float. Yeah. Subtract the float. If it's a percentage. If it's just a number, if they said, we're taking $5, and you take 50 minus $5. Usually it's a percent, yes. So what's the float rate again? What? What's the float rate? The float is how much is taken by the brokers. Now, strangely enough, you won't see me use that new for debt or preferred. The reason is that Brokers tend not to charge hardly any float 
to sell new issue debt or new issue preferred. At least historically they didn't. So the only place this has a heavy impact is on selling new common stock. This is one of the great killers in a lot of companies. <coughs> now, I, I will share with you a quick story about this. Many years ago when I was a consultant, we had a company, this, we were supposed to meet out in the back lot of the airport, Atlanta airport, uh, ATL. And it was back then, you could drive anywhere on an airport and all that. But he had a vision of starting a company by buying abandoned jets from a company that, uh, a company that had gone bankrupt. And he was going to turn those jets into carrier package services for places like post office, UPS. This was years ago. And it all worked. And what he needed was $5 million. So we went out and we met with him. And we told him that this was doable. He had all the FAA approvals and everything. And we could do it. So we simply told him, okay, we're going to raise the seven million and we'll have it within a week. And he said, no, it's five. And he said, and we said, no, it's seven. So, uh, two is ours. Uh, the float. That's how it works in private uh, equity. You take a whopping amount which of course drives up insanely the cost of cap, cost of your equity cap. He had an absolute fit, so we just walked out. We had it all set up so that he'd chase us and uh, beg us to come back. So uh, it all worked out in the end, except it didn't because it turned out he was a criminal. Uh, yeah. So it was under new, is that supposed to be R, R sub N? Is that R sub S? Oh, R, R. Well, actually, the price, oh, Arsabend, yeah, I see what you're saying, the Arsabend here, Arsabend. Now, let me show you real quick a dirty little example. Okay. Let me, let me show you a dirty little example. Type, uh, cost, uh, am uh, amount, market value. Market value and over here uh, cost. Okay, so the debt. Let's say the company has $18 million in market value of debt outstanding. And the cost of debt is, let's say, 7.25 times 1 minus 0.21. Now the cost of preferred, now preferred, suppose that they have $2 million in preferred outstanding with a cost of let's say 4%, 4. And they have common stock, and let's say that they have 26 million. 
no, let's say 38 million. And the common stock is running them 15%. I should put percentages on these. Here's what you do. First things first, total. Equals sum of these. The weight of each. Oops. I want to do it up here. Weight equals that divided by that as an absolute reference. And then you can get the weights of each of them. Weighted average cost of capital will then equal some product of that by that. You turn that into a percent. Scooch it over a little bit. There's weighted average cost of capital. Yeah. So with the weight targets that we have with the capital structure, are those the percentages that we think will give us the lowest class? Yeah, we yeah, and you could probe this. You see these all, everything was just market values here. So if I say actually my WAC should be about eight percent. Well, that would mean that I probably need to up my debt level and move it around until I see how much debt should I issue to get me to my bottom, my lowest. That's the end of this lecture, which is one of the worst you'll have this semester. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.